0: Sup, of pain, and welcome to the right side of the pond.
1: It is Friday, and we're back on our new gen journey uh, this week, looking at quite a momentous event, really, in the history of pro wrestling. Uh, it's in your house one, which, of course, was the first uh, pay per view outside the big five, that obviously introduced King of the Ring in 1993, which is a kind of de facto. You know, fifth big, you know, fifth uh, show of a big five in your house kind of began the tradition of monthly pay-per-views more or less that W.F. have been following ever since. So it's pretty huge in the history of pro wrestling for that reason alone. Uh, the fact that it's also got one of the greatest uh, hipster classics of all time on uh, just just gives it even more credit in the bank for me.
0: Immediately from the from the very beginning i said this many times about In Your house Houses, uh, you know, you can go through that entire franchise of pay-per-views uh, and on almost pretty much every single one of them, there's always a classic match on the card, like almost without, um, you know, without kind of uh, exception. And, you know, I mean, the, fir- the first ever match on the first ever In Your House is Bret Hart and Akushi. And so it's like you couldn't get off to a better start if you wanted to. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was momentous occasion. It's a curious... Curious, odd little show. Not least of all because they give away a house on it. Uh, but you know, I guess in your house. And I remember actually on the TV's leading up to it, certainly on the Raws, it, it it's strange because it, they didn't make kind of that big a deal about it. Like if the, if if we existed now in a world where we had only had five pay-per-views a year up until 2019, and then in December they were about to do the first ever monthly pay-per-view, you just know they'd make a real kind of massive song and. Dance! Look how big and important this is, and isn't it all rather game-changing? Didn't really get much of that in in 1995 when they rolled this one out. And the show has, as most in your house shows did, particularly during New Gen, uh, a, a, a a very endearing sense of of humility about it. It's not even two hours
1: long. Well, this is the thing. So the the original concept with the in your house was that they were actually priced at half the price. Of the other pay-per-views, so at the time, uh, like WrestleMania and so on, uh, were all retailing for twenty-nine dollars. Which, when you think about it, for nineteen ninety-five, it's quite a lot of money. It's quite a lot of money for two thousand nineteen. Well, this is what I mean. It's like you know, before the network came in, uh, I think a WWE pay-per-view in America was something like forty-five dollars or something like that. So, it's actually when you think about inflation, like thirty dollars is a lot of money. Um, but anyway, so they, they they retailed them at at at, uh, at fourteen ninety five instead, and um, it was kind of uh, a response to WCW, which had gone to, I think, nine shows the year before. So it was it was a kind of obvious move for them to try and kind of uh, mirror what what WW were doing. But it was quite a soft launch, as you say, like. They didn't give it much fanfare on TV beforehand. I guess they wanted to see how it went. Because um, really, it's like a... It's a funny cross between a house show and a pay-per-view. The first four or five, especially, are like that. They start feeling a bit more like more traditional pay-per-views after that. But certainly the first few are sort of... They're working out the format a little bit. Uh, and, of course, you've got the very famous stage set and logo, which have become you know quite iconic for certainly for people of my age um and they also used to have a load of dark matches before and after the taped bit uh and sometimes they'd show those dark matches sort of on tv at a later date or you know they were i see some of various vhs video compilations where they'd put out the in your house matches that you hadn't seen on the show um so yeah it was it's an interesting time really and as you say in your house one kicks off with i mean really one of my favorite matches full stop i have to say like this match i remember first revisiting when wwe released the blu-ray of the best of in your house and i ordered that like pretty much the day it came out and uh managed to sort of uh, sit there on a day off from work and actually just watch through the entire blu-ray and it starts <laughs> with this and i think it ends with maybe a match in 1999 it goes all the way through that 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 span and what a match to begin the series with so the story going in is that brett's actually signed for two matches which is such a brett hart thing to do anyway uh one with hikushi who has you know been given quite a push coming in and isn't like the modern-day kamikaze. And then you've got his ongoing issue with Jerry Lawler, which, uh, you know, which had been going on since, well... 93. <laughs> 93, So it's been going on for a good two years. And Lawler's on about having an open contract and Brett's been ducking him. So uh, that's that's how Brett ends up in two matches in one night. And, of course, Jerry Lawler, being the coward that he is, uh, sits and waits until Brett's had his match... Uh, with hakushi before he uh, will uh, wrestle Brett himself. Um, I mean, the, fir- the first point I'd make, if I could jump in real
0: quick, on. On, on the Jerry Lawler-Brett Hart front, is that it's worth emphasizing to people that uh, although they'd had their issues with one another since 1993, for the entirety of 94, they were really... You know, not they didn't really do anything with each other. You know, but uh, Jerry Lawler would always, you know, constantly be berating the Hart family and berating Brett on, on the microphone and on the announce table. But it's not like they were feuding in the in the in the contemporary sense of the word uh, for all that time. Which in itself, you know, again, lost art these days. You know, it's it, they didn't have 12, 12 pay per view matches in a row. They had a, a rivalry in '93. Uh, their characters maintained that adversarial relationship uh, whenever they came into any kind of proximity uh, and it just so happened that it kind of cycled back to a more proactive feud heading into this first pay-per-view and Jerry Lord of course only accepting another match with Brett after the pasting he got at SummerSlam 93 when he knows that it's going to be the second match of the night and Bret has to go up against this well as you said modern day
1: kamikaze at the opening of the show absolutely and, and I think you know you see it with Armin as well don't you that Owen still hates Brett he hasn't stopped hating Brett just because they're not wrestling <laughs> like Quite. you know it's this constant like theme like Owen hates Brett um, so it, it that sort of character continuity uh, was really exciting I thought um, and you've got that like sometimes in, in the modern era the shield are maybe the closest example you know like of building a continuity between three characters uh, but but it's never been done in quite the the elegant way that, that the new-gen accomplice don't think. Um, so, obviously, this is a classic, and the first thing to say is, if you've never seen this match, what the hell are you doing with your life? <laughs> uh, if,
0: you've, if you've never seen this match, keep your ears out for the episode of Sports Entertainment is Dead Around December time, where I'm joined by Primetime, when we break it down in detail.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I mean it is just... It's, it's miles ahead of its time. You know, like, Hikushi does stuff that you wouldn't regularly see on WWF TV until, I mean, arguably until Jeff Hardy, really. it, it You know, he really is uh, an absolute force of nature. And he only does those crazy high-risk things when it's sensible to do so. Like, he was an incredibly smart in-ring performer, Hikushi. Um, and it's great because Brett, as he always does like absolutely just kind of goes with the the story of the match which is that he's got to try and conserve some energy somehow uh but his opponent's far too dangerous for him to be able to risk that so he's constantly um torn between the need to try and conserve himself somehow and the need to see off an incredibly dangerous opponent um and Shinja's interference you know Hmm. is is brilliantly done and brett's constantly having to go outside and pummel shinja some more and then you know he'll get caught by hakushi it's uh it's it's just such smart pro wrestling as all bret hart matches were of course but this one is you know when it comes to his mid-card matches like genuine mid-card matches like this is right up there
0: uh it's the kind of performance that puts me in mind a lot of or i guess it would be the other way around it um that I was put in mind of when uh, Seth was having his IC title run uh, in, in 2018. Uh, you know, it's highly competitive, fiercely intelligent, Brett is the, the good guy in it, but he's a a, a proactive good guy. He's aggressive uh, in it. I love, I think there's a moment. Doesn't he um, do like a suicide dive on Shinja at one point before pummeling him on the outside, and then getting back to Hikushi because of the, the constant interference. And, and I think Hikushi proves such a wonderful foil for Brett because he, even though their in-ring styles are obviously vastly different, um, he comes off as equally as resourceful as Brett in the ring. You know, Brett was always the ring general. He always had a counter or he always had a hold or he always had some way of being able to to get back that advantage. And it feels like Hikushi is almost his his uh, you know his japanese opposite number in in some respects and so there's even though there's a lot of differences between them both not least of all visually it, it also feels like they're two competitors of a very similar ilk uh, and uh, i think it makes for a, a wonderful opening match i mean that you know beyond anything else it's it's an opening match on a pay-per-view isn't it so it's got to light the place up somewhat and i think they do that tremendously uh, and you know the 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 fact that it's part one of the story that runs through the night, we're always banging on about this on, on, on the pond and we see it a lot with new gem. Um, I love the fact that it's, that it's sort of uh, part one of a, of a larger story because of course, uh, Brett at one point does uh, seemingly uh, will put emphasis on the word seemingly tweak his knee, which kind of, you know, gives rise to a lot of intrigue for his match later in, in, in the show against, Uh, jerry lawler it's a tremendous opening for the first ever in your house and a a real prime example of how brett was such a malleable performer and seemed to relish and almost thrive on the opportunity to be able to perform against uh professional wrestlers of wildly varying styles uh, in a manner that was never anything less than impeccable
1: entirely And, and you know that bit you mentioned about the injury is so clever because it's not even in the match it's like he slides out of the ring Mm. After he's won the match with a victory roll, which I love as well, because of course it's how Owen beat him at WrestleMania 10. Indeed. Um, and you know, and the the commentary team immediately pick up that uh, that that yeah, he might have tweaked himself accidentally getting out of the ring. Um, and then he cuts... And like you 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 absolutely wouldn't see that today
0: at all, would you? And and if you did, people would complain about it. Why would you do that if it wasn't in the match? But it was, you know, it's it's that sense of, and it was something that I always one of the things I loathed most about John Cena as a performer, for example, was that after the bell rang at the end of the match, it was like the match never happened. Like he's still in the ring. The guy that he's just beat is still hovering around, but it's like, like I remember, I guess the prime example is when he did that hell in a cell match with Randy Orton the first time and Randy Orton punted him to win the match, which was of course the move that put triple H out for months and Vince McMahon out for months. And they built all of WrestleMania's top angle around it. And like, Thirty seconds latest. John is on his feet, fine and dandy, and it's and and that's just a microcosmic example of, of you know that sense of you're still telling the story even after the match is over, uh, and and those little details like that that help create a real sense of immersion, a sense of a universe that is very much alive. Uh, you know, a television show uh, it seems to to have died a death rather.
1: Yeah, it's like. They just had a lot more creative um, vision, I think, back then. Like, the, actually giving some intrigue for later in the night in the match with Lola, uh, would be a good thing. And Brett being the author of his own downfall by A, having the hubris to, a, to agree to two matches in the first place, and then tweaking his leg by jumping out of the ring after he, after he's won the first one... You know, it's just, it's that extra layer of storytelling that pro wrestling used to have, not exclusively to do, Jen. You know, you could look at the era beforehand as well, and even back into the, the territory days, I dare say. It's just that, I guess, the storytelling of pro wrestling has become so simplistic like and it's, formulaic it's, now.
0: It's segmented. It's like, you know, I've, I've always been frustrated when, you know, it's a big match situation or it's a Hell in a Cell match or something like that, and the guy comes out, walking to the ring with a smile on his face or something, you know, and it's like the entrance is as much a part of the performance and the story you're telling as, as everything else. If if they did something like that today, it'd have to be an angle. They'd have to, you know, they'd, they'd feel compelled to turn it into a big angle and there'd be a big beat down and they'd make a big palaver out of the fact he's hurt his knee and then you'd see shots of him in the trainer's room afterwards and, you know, they'd make a meal of it and the fact that it's kind of just there and it just plays around in the background and it gradually begins to, to you know, have a, a, a greater sense of importance i really love that you know i really because it it's what makes it feel real it's what makes it feel like well like i said like you're, you're looking through a window into a into a universe that is not aware of its own self uh, and that's sorely lacking in has been for a long time
1: yeah and and i think the other thing to think about is the fact that this double duty thing they do with brett here you know they have managed to do that successfully people like ziggler and Rollins indeed uh recently um and you know it's another storytelling technique which is really really effective and really works for certain characters and i just wish sometimes they would look at their own past a bit more and find these things you know rather than just trying to resurrect a match type like they have to with something like war games actually you know look back at some of their old angles and some of their old pay-per-views and think all oh, that would that could work in the modern day. Um, <laughs>
0: The thing, I mean, I think the
1: thing I love most
0: of all is the fact that as soon as they make they point out that Brett may have tweaked his knee, Jerry Lawler immediately wants his match there and then. Suddenly he doesn't want to wait anymore. You know, he's it's it's almost Trumpian in the way that he it, he immediately starts to try and twist the the situation to make himself come off as if he's something that he isn't. You know, and and suddenly Brett's the coward because he doesn't want his match there and then. Uh, and again you just have that real sense of
1: life and character it's it's such a joy to watch yeah absolutely It's uh, you know the way they do the backstage segments of this show uh full stop is is really good you know they all really add something it's a great one with diesel uh in the locker room and and i think people sometimes forget that diesel's space character um was a lot more layered and deep than than you remember it being and like they do a great thing where he goes, he goes, uh, and talks about his, uh, the death of his mother. And then he talks about, you know, worrying about Shawn Michaels in the hospital after Sid Vicious has put him there, uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so you've, you've, you've got that, you've got that constant sort of relation between what's going on in the ring or what will be going on in the ring and what's going on backstage while you wait for it. And it's just got that, that sense of, uh, taking the narrative from one place to the next.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, on the, on the King point, actually he's, he's begging for the match the whole way through the night. So this, this, uh, this move with, with Brett tweaking his knee, it's, 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 you know, ev- between every match, Jerry Lawler is saying he wants his match and Brett's a coward. I mean, on the diesel point, I'm, I'm less enamored with, with the, with the promo that he does, uh, backstage. Um, Maybe because I think it probably feels a little bit like, the, the, well, the very thing they tried to do with Sean in, in 96. And it feels almost against type for him, uh, especially at a point where, uh, you know, Diesel was always kind of the cool guy. And, and certainly would, by the end of '96, uh, by the end of 95, revert back to being kind of the more aggressive, edgier character. Uh, and it feels very much like Brett, especially in the way he wrestles. We've spoken about this in past shows is is becoming that himself as well. So um, I can certainly see a point of view about the, the layering of his character and the attempt to turn him into something three-dimensional and, and uh, uh, you know, ultimately he's the top guy at this point. He's the champion, but it feels very much like Vince is trying to turn him into a champion that Vince wants rather than a champion Diesel could be, um, which I appreciate is probably a little harsh, uh, but it's it's nonetheless... Uh, how I felt rather and and, and, I mean it's it's worth me reiterating on the back of that though that I absolutely do not for one second buy into the the prevailing narrative about Diesel's championship reign from a at least a quality standpoint but um, I do think there are
1: some bumps in the road yeah I mean that sort of baby face promo stuff is always a difficult line to walk what I was really interested in was his delivery was much more animated and Mm. much more because I tend to think of Face Diesel as being, you know, that bloody, you know, pulling the lorry horn and walking <laughs> to the ring and, you know, and all that stuff. And it being a bit cringe. Uh, and obviously, like, his, not his ring work, but just the stuff that was going on outside of his ring work. Like, your recollection of it is a bit like, oh, you know, that bloody theme music and him and the horn and, you know big dad's cool and all that stuff and, and and i think like when you watch the promos back it's like oh no you can see that promo ability that he would show in wcw like you can see it there it's just underneath the layer of vince doing a little bit of ersatz hogan stuff but in the background
0: I mean, I you know, I I quite like Diesel's latter day music. I, it's it was when it was just I hated it when it was just like lorry noises.
1: <laughs> so bad.
0: Do you remember like, that yeah, where yeah. you would just walk and it would just be a solid wall of lorry noises and engine noises? Like, <laughs> what even is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's,
0: he's he's not actually a truck.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you know, I'd always I've never actually looked into like where they came up with the name Diesel in the first place, but. Given that he was called Vinnie Vegas and God knows what else beforehand, <laughs> I think oh it's Oz, wasn't it? Oz and Vinnie Vegas, like maybe Diesel was the the, the the lesser of those evils, really. Um, he'll always be Diesel to me. Indeed. Well, it's it's interesting actually, like because they 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 had him obviously in in 2002 when he came back again. He was under his Kevin Nash name because it suited the narrative of the NWO coming in to kill the company. Um, but then when he came back for a rumble a, a while back, he came back as Diesel. As Diesel, yeah. Um, so 2011. Even within WWE's own continuity, it's uh, a sketchy one. Um, right, so we've kind of got off the beaten track a little bit here. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Shock. Uh, so uh, next, again, something else we've heaped praise on so far in this series. Uh, is Razor Ramon and his position as the top mid-card guy. Um, And here, non-title, so IC title not up for grabs, Uh, he uh, has a match with Jeff Jarrett and the roadie, a handicap match, originally scheduled to be a tag match with one, two, three, Kid, but uh, Kid had a legit injury that he had to uh, rehab and therefore became a handicap match. They actually get... One, two, three kid on the phone in the world's worst satellite line. <laughs> 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 like, you can barely hear what he's saying. It's like, it's like the crackliest phone line ever. You know, Vince awkwardly interviewing him and a uh, very very odd set of events it does feel it's one of those things that does make it feel like a legit sporting event like they just phoned one, two, three kid up in his front room <laughs> like watching <laughs> the show You know, going hey razor go kill him man <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> as if razor can hear them
1: yeah 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 oh brilliant um but yeah it's i thought you know i thought in many ways this was even better than the rumble match oh wow uh certainly like i love I love the finish, and I love how clean the finish is, and you know it's actually it's actually refreshing to watch a match where actually because in the new gen there was so much variety in finishes. Sometimes you often see baby face just win with their finisher, and actually Razor just plants him with the razor's Edge in this match, which I think is really uh, it's just really cool. Um, and the Rosie, I have to say, uh, you you said it last week, and I kind of uh, scoffed a little bit, but he does really <laughs> he does really put a shift in in this match, to be fair.
0: Yeah, man, absolutely. He has a great match with the kid as well. At the might even be the next in your house. It is, yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I that I like it um as much or more than the the rumble match, but it's certainly it. You know, it's 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 really good. It's highly entertaining. It's I think it started life uh intended to be a tag team match. It did. Um, and and ends ends up becoming a a handicap match. But what I love about it is the fact that. Uh, the When I watch it, the impression I, I've always had and the, the kind of the story I've always felt it tells is that really, it's going to sound really corny and cliche, but Razor's partner is the, the live crowd, the audience who are sort of always spurring him on. And you get this real sense, I think, this palpable sense of um, almost like scales constantly sort of um, trying to unbalance and rebalance themselves. Uh, there's the, more more than most handicap matches i think there's a real tangible sense of the odds and, and of the the disadvantages built into a handicap match for the guy who's wrestling on his own uh, and um, you know it's 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 almost got a, a bret hart cadence to the way that it's wrestled razor keeps nailing his chances for comebacks but he can never quite get there um and uh, uh, rody and Jarrett, i think such a great duo they were so hateable you know, they were one of those those uh, heel duos that you just loved to hate um, because just smug and irascible and just showboating all the time in ways that never felt quite justified. Uh, and, you know, a, a, a case in point, really, uh, of how smart, I guess they all are, but particularly how smart Scott Hall or Razor Ramon was in his in his prime and just how I think people forget how good he really was when he was at the peak of his career. And I know people will say WCW is the peak of his career, but I think physically... He, he was never better than when he was in the WWF through this this period here. Uh, and, you know, and mentioned it last week uh, before I was banished to the depths of Chip Shop Hell uh, that uh, in their WrestleMania match that, uh, you know, you had that sense of growing familiarity. And I think that again comes into play here. And I think that this very much watches like the third match in a series in the sense that now they know each other like the back of of each other's hand uh, and we've come a long way from that that rumble encounter and now they're very very familiar with one another but what help what what gives them new ground what stops it feeling like they know each other too well to really do anything new is the fact that now you have the roadie is the x factor you know so from a uh, to, to do new things with to, to try new ideas so from a just from the point of view of the structure of the story line um i think it's it's quite inspired as well uh, so uh, yeah lots of lots of good things to say and i think is followed ended with the debut of savio vega
1: indeed he he comes in at the end uh to save razor from uh, a beatdown so razor wins the match quite convincingly but then they gang up on him afterwards he's in the figure four and uh yeah he he kind of runs in his kind of uh, sleeveless plaid shirt <laughs> and starts and starts like you know Throwing uh, Rosie over the top rope and chasing Jarrett away, and uh, well, it's it's actually well, you know, inverted commas Doc Hendricks, so Michael Hayes on commentary, who uh, who basically is all like, oh, security, get that guy, like you know, throw him in the jail, uh, and then they go backstage and have an interview with um, I, the female backstage interviewer, who I can't I can't remember her name, oh, like gosh, she's, no, she's not actually in it that much i think she was on that show and then not many more but um they they do a promo where uh, razor introduces him as if everybody should know who he is like oh he's the hardest man in the caribbean and i had many a <laughs> match with him <laughs> and uh it's like and he sort of turns around and said chico it's good to have you on my side for once <laughs> <laughs> um, I
0: mean, I I just did want to to say Doc Hendricks. That's definitely a Vince man name.
1: I mean, for God's sake, like you know, <laughs> it's 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 like I mean, so many of these bad interviewer names at the time. Like I mean, who could forget Vince Russo as as uh, Vic Venom? <laughs> <laughs> just like what the hell? <laughs> good times uh but yeah it's it's uh it's a really neat way it's his new character like you know no vignettes no you know just randomly some music playing and somebody walking out and fans like realizing who it is it's a guy saves another guy from a beat down and they reveal that he's a wrestler great elegant way to do it
0: and that he's the hardest man in the caribbean and i and you know you, you can kind of thumb your nose a little bit at that kind of thing but it works as a as a presentation, because even though there was no real infamy for Vega, at least in WWF, uh, or at least there's no sense of that when you watch stuff back, the fact that you're being told that there is, and, and you get a sense that oh Razor knows this guy, and you know, and and the commentary team know this guy, uh, and obviously probably supported with those who were aware of his work during that time, you know, quite naturally outside of WWF, but for a a, a young fan, uh, which I very much would have been at this point. Um, you know talking single digits young um that works wonders like i remember when when ken shamrock uh turned up and they used to call him the world's most dangerous man and he would you know and he'd snap and all that business it was so convincing that this guy was was genuinely unstable so when you, you when you present characters like that like you say it's very elegant, very elegant way to do it um it's a different kind of way to doing it you know there's no kind of weeks of uh video vignettes which is you know, another great way to introduce a new character. Um, it's just sudden and it's and it's uh, action-packed uh, and, of course, robustly followed up at King of the Ring, but we'll talk about that next week, so I don't want to kind of get ahead of ourselves here. Um, and to immediately attach him to Razor, ramon who as you know we've already discussed on this show the kind of intercontinental championship linchpin uh you know you want to talk about the benefits of roster positioning well by instantly putting vega with ramon you know exactly where he slots in on this roster and what kind of uh, a level he's going to be competing at
1: and you know like when you know when you um you put somebody next to an established star like that you know it immediately gives them a boost uh, I, I'm kind of put in mind of that Survivor Series team where you had Triple H and Shawn Michaels, and they, and they put CM Punk on the team. Mm. And it's like, even though backstage, I'm sure CM Punk wouldn't have been like, oh, great, uh, Vince, you know, <laughs> like, Shawn and Hunter like me now. It, it was certainly, for his profile at the time, quite a big deal, particularly as they got a clean sweep as a team. And that kind of, yeah, that kind of positioning, it does... It does make a difference. Um, so yeah it's a great way to introduce Sabio Baker and he'd go on to be a fantastic talent for WF in that mid 90s to late 90s range. you know he was a real solid hand and of course would later be an important part of the nation of domination as well. so um, yeah, great great way to do it, I think and a, a really fun mid card handicap match because handicap matches are difficult right? Uh, I, there aren't many that are good certainly, I mean, and most of them are actively bad, so uh, to, to have such a successful one is again a testament to the show I think. Indeed. Uh, so obviously we're in, uh, as you mentioned a minute ago Plan, like King of the Ring was coming up at the time that the show took place, and so you've actually got in the dark matches, you have some other King of the Ring qualifiers uh, but the King of the Ring qualifier that she put on the show was Mabel against adam bomb Hmm. in a one minute 54 squash match uh but i don't mind it i know it would lead us to king mabel which is not a good thing uh but in terms of trying to build up a guy with squash matches that's always something that works in pro wrestling and really what they did with with king mabel or mabel in 1995 is i I struggle to find many differences to what they did with braun Strowman in the back end of 2016 um it's it's like take your monster have your monster be a monster uh nothing wrong with that
0: yeah absolutely i mean i'll say first of all in the way of of uh making sure that um people know i'm not going to be completely ridiculous uh that i would i would largely agree that the, the the king mabel idea didn't really work that well by the time it was it was over uh and i think as as the the history of those kind of super big men in in wwe pushed as monster heels uh, you know i don't think king mabel is going to sit very highly up that you know he's no Yokozuna, uh he's no vader he's he's decent enough but i don't think he's he's on the level of the very best of them uh, and I think that the to an extent, they were probably trying to recapture a, a sense of that and an element of that with him. Um, and it was, you know, Men on a Mission had been a, a very kind of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, endearing babyface actors, a tag team. You know, they always got the crowd up and dancing and, and whatnot. And well, they, they were the
1: proto-New Day, to be honest. You in know, a lot of ways, yeah, They, they had, uh, when they first came in in... What like ninety two? I want to say maybe ninety three. Ninety three, yeah. They came in, and I, I'm, I still to this day remember the vignettes as if they were yesterday. You know, like the all this going around the streets of, I think it was Detroit, Absolutely. like going yeah. around the streets and doing charity. And they had a song, like they had a kind of like hip hop song that accompanied them on these vignettes. Um, and if you've ever, if
0: you've ever seen Sister Act two. It's like the scene where all the nuns go
1: out and help people in the streets. Absolutely, yeah. Or is that sister act one? I can't remember. Uh, but it's, 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 it's just, uh, you know, they did such good vignettes, like the Razor ones as well, when Razor was about to debut, were fantastic. Where Vince had never heard of Scarface, had thought Scott Hall was a genius. <laughs> oh, I love that story. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's certainly the case that, to me, when New Day first came up with this idea of being a bit kind of gospel preachery. And then of course it, it became its own thing quite rapidly. Uh, I immediately thought of men on the mission.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they had decent tag team matches. There are a number of good tag team matches that they have on, on television. Um, but you know, I think it ultimately, it, it was a little disappointing, um, a run for him. Uh, but I mean, in terms of this, I mean, like you were saying, man, if it gets the job done, you know, you build you're building your monster up by having him defeat, Big guys uh, in short matches, so it serves a purpose. And I'll say this as well, you know, Adam Bomb obviously never set the world on fire, but he was a big, agile guy, uh, and he could pull some decent stuff off in the ring, including, you know, he would sometimes do clotheslines off, off the ropes, off the turnbuckles in, in a in a sort of cane light way. Um, so, you know, it's 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 not that it's good, but it's certainly it's nowhere near enough to derail the show this, uh, you know, because beyond anything else, the pace is very upbeat.
1: Yeah. It's, it, I mean, as, as squash matches go, it's, it, it's pretty lively, isn't it? I mean, it might only be two minutes long, but they get, they get through a fair amount of content in that time. And, um, you know, and
0: variety, you know, variety. You've had, uh, we've had three matches on the show,
1: all extremely different to one another. I mean, and I said before we, we began recording, it's great when you go back and watch these things because, I, for the life of me, did not remember Adam Bomb ever being a babyface. Uh, and yet here we are with him having a babyface run. So it's, it's good to go back and watch these things sometimes. Indeed. Uh, right. So we are uh, on to uh, the brilliant tag team of Amin Hart and Kazina who won the tag titles at uh, the previous show we looked at, WrestleMania 11. And they here are up against the Smoking Guns um, in a tag match for the tag championship. Um, and, of course, again, it's it, it's a brilliant exercise in maximising minutes, this match, I think, because the Guns, as we talked about last week, were, you know, obviously a linchpin tag team of the era. Um and they get all their all their offense in, and eventually they're just kind of not smart enough to keep up with the heels.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like there's a, a story that develops where they try and keep Owen isolated, and then as before, you know, as soon as Yoko gets tagged in, and those big kind of difference-making moves start to, to pile up, um, it's 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 something you just cannot contend with. Uh, almost like you've you've uh, you know, it's it's unstoppable force territory. Um, And so, uh, and I think it's worth saying as well, uh, you know, Yoko obviously uh, probably known as that performer who just got excessively uh, weightier as his career went on to the point where in 1996, you know, it was quite an awesome sight to see. Uh, But at this, and that sadly did start to limit what he could do in the ring, but he's still pretty mobile at this point. Um, he's still uh, aesthetically as impressive as ever, but he's still able to compete at a relatively brisk pace because being in a tag team environment helps with that because he gets you know regular extended breaks. That was the real genius, I think, of putting Owen Yoko together um, and why they succeeded from a match quality point of view so brilliantly. Because with Owen Hart, you had you know, a world class, all time elite talent who could carry most of the match. And in Yokozuna, you had a world class, all time elite big man who, when it came to having short difference making performances, would really be able to turn heads. And when you combine those two things together, you get, to my mind, quite possibly uh, the best um, incidental tag team I think the company's ever seen. Quite honestly, uh, I, I think they really were a special uh, combination, especially when you added Jim Cornette to the mix as their manager. Uh, and here they're, you know, they're defending the titles against the the foremost concept team of the era, the Smoking Guns. Um, and it's the kind of, you know, it's the kind of tag team match I wish we saw more of. Now, uh, it's it's not going to win match of the year or anything, but it does more than just uh, the kind of the sterile established tag team trope of prolonged hot tag structure and that's it um it feels like it's it's a match that's interested in in uh in being able to maximize its minutes in being able to uh maybe not exceed expectations uh, but but to certainly ensure that the next time these two teams meet expectations were a little higher than they were before so uh, i think it's it's a really charming little gem
1: Absolutely, and and I think tag team wrestling in WF, I mean, right up until, you know, the end of... I mean, yeah, to be fair, you could say, like, right up until the end of 98, you know, you you could take 85 to 98 as a time period and just say that tag team wrestling was just uh, in unbelievably good health uh, through that time period. And some people might look at the new-gen teams and think well you know uh they're not the name value of the rock and wrestling teams and and you'd be right with that but tag team wrestling you know was still a really important part of the show and just as in the rock wrestling era was frequently some of the best stuff that took place on the show
0: no absolutely totally i i you know i agree entirely and and uh, what if it lacked anything in, in, in having those established concept teams, it more than made up for it in ensuring that the story was there or that the matches were doing something fresh and interesting. Uh, so, you know, appearances could be deceptive, especially on paper when it comes to professional wrestling. I mean that literally when it comes to, paper, to, be, to looking at it on paper. Um, and... You know, everything in New Gen had context and everything in New Gen meant something. And that includes matches like this. That's why they, they work so well. That's why they're so infinitely fun to watch. No, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Um
0: Alright, so Jerry Law though. Oh, last point actually is is you mentioned the 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 cleanness of how Ramon wins in the in the handicap match. I absolutely love the fact that uh, this tag team match is won as soon as Yokozuna is able to nail one of the guns with a leg drop. Like that's all it takes. This guy is so huge, so powerful. The minute he's had it, he's, he hits a leg drop. It, it's done. And there's, there's this succinctness
1: to that, that I, that I really, really love. Yeah. And they did the same thing with Big Show, didn't they? Like in his jerry show and his Miz show, show Miz, <laughs> um, whichever, whichever <laughs> way, way round that was, uh, runs where often the match won just by him, Leading over the ropes and doing a knockout punch without him being tagged in, and then Jericho or Miss would just pin the guy. Um, they, they they worked a similar thing, I think. Um, right, so uh, Jerry Lauder and Bret Hart. It's only a five minutes um, affair. Obviously, there's a um, you know a dirty finish to it, um, so it doesn't uh, doesn't get the sort of lengthy uh, runtime. But again, it's like in terms of this through the night story, it, it does its job um, and sets up the kiss my foot match for for uh, King of the Ring uh, 95. The
0: um, the the important distinction to make is is sort of one that we've we've talked about already as we start to revisit 1995 in these podcasts, which is the difference between wrestling a great match and telling a great story. Uh, and. Uh, you know, the magic of when Brett and Jerry Lawler met in the ring was never about having a workhorse classic. It was never about having 25 minutes of time to wrestle with. It was never about that narrow contemporary definition of what makes wrestling good and what makes wrestling bad. Uh, it was based so heavily in their characters, what Jerry Lawler would say, how he would act, and the temerity and the indignity of of what of what Brett had to suffer whenever he was interacting with Jerry Lawler and dignity is really the word to define uh, their interactions with one another. And that uh, when you, when you grasp that context, when you grasp that perspective, uh, well, actually just to illustrate that a little bit more, you know, you think about their match at SummerSlam 1993, a tremendous pay-per-view and uh, you think about that match, Brett Hart, has to go through the indignity of Jerry Lola coming out and waxing lyrical about how he's hurt his knee and he isn't cleared to compete. And then he has to wrestle Doink. Then after he wrestled Doink, Jerry Lola embarrasses him by beating him up with a crutch. Then Brett gets the better of him in a pretty vicious little match until the, re- the decision is reversed because Brett loses his temper so much he doesn't let go of the sharpshooter. So Jerry Lola gets the last laugh. It's that kind of indignity that defines their competitive relationship. And it happens again here. In a way that will lead on to, as you say, the uh, the Kiss My Foot match. Uh, what matters here is that I think uh, Bret Hart dedicates the match to his mum. Um, I might be mixing that up with he the knows,
1: he, match. No, he, no, he does. He does because it's Mother's Day. He does. Day. Excellent. So this yes, show takes place on Mother's Day. And uh, that's why Diesel cuts the promo about his dead mother. Why Bret Hart does uh, dedicates it to, uh, to Helen. Um, and that's later on, after the match that Razor has. Uh, and he's doing that thing with Sabio. Uh, Razor also says uh, this is for Mama Ramon, who <laughs> obviously is cool. just a fictional character.
0: Well, there you go. I mean, in in the context of this Heart Lawler match, it's it's very very important to understand that that. Brett had dedicated this match to his mother, and it's very un- important to understand that obviously one of the primary reasons why these two men started to dislike one another in night three was because Jerry Lawler, on an episode of Monday Night Raw, came out and needlessly ragged all over Brett's mum and dad while he was wrestling. The fact that Jerry Lawler has targeted Brett's family with these kind of uh, red top tabloid claims uh, and, and this kind of um, uh, 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 almost punitive uh, trash talk uh, is is the underlying foundation of the very reason why they dislike one another. That's been furthered already on this show because throughout the entire night after Brett seemingly tweaked his knee, Jerry Lawler has been calling him all kinds of names and saying he wants his match there and then. Brett Hart's run scared of him. Uh, and then when this match happens, Brett reveals he never tweaked his knee. It was a, a psychological ploy to get the edge over an incompetent Jerry Lawler. As you say, Mav, it's very short. Brett is incredibly aggressive and um, Uh, And it feels like, in a lot of ways, another squash match until, obviously, Hakushi interferes. Great synergy with the earlier match. Um, And Jerry Lawler gets the win. And it's so important to understand that Jerry Lawler getting the win is what drives this story forwards. Because in the weeks that follow, when they're setting up the King of the Ring match, uh, Jerry Lawler would often, obviously, at this time, be doing colour commentary on Raw. There's certainly at least one episode of Raw that I vividly remember watching when I was researching my book where Bret Hart comes out and confronts Jerry Lawler, who's been running his mouth about how he beat Bret Hart in a match Bret Hart dedicated to his mother and how that's deeply embarrassing. Bret has cut promos about how deeply angered and embarrassed he is that he was cheated out of a victory in this match that he dedicated to his mother, and it was Jerry Lawler of all people. And then there's one episode where he comes out and he confronts Lawler at the announce table, and it's almost sort of Austin McMahon like in the way that the segment plays out. Um, and again, Brett's incredibly aggressive and in your face. I mean, you know, you're talking sort of, you know, 1997 Austin in Brett in 95. It's, it's in, or, or late night, uh, early night six Diesel in Brett at this point. It's, it's a fantastic. Uh, arc to watch him develop through 1995 and this feud is integral to that arc it's very much the heart of it in fact um because brett's sick of all of this temerity sick of all of this indignity that happens in in matches like this one on on the first uh in your house match so again it's about telling that inc- and i think it's a it's an it's an incredibly told story when you begin to understand how all of the pieces of it uh, interact how it's how it fits into wider arcs, how it's, how it's got a context that makes it so much more than what it seems to be on the surface. You know, when you go and you sit and watch new gen beginning to end, this is what makes it such a fulfilling, excuse me, <clears throat> fulfilling and rich and rewarding experiences because it's, it's just, everything is just so got so much life and and so much depth to it and this is a great example of that so um and hart gets i think some revenge after he loses but uh, it's clear that his frustration is already showing at this point um and you know that theme of of indignity carries on through to um to the uh, king of the ring match of course where uh, as i mentioned uh, you know uh Brett wants to kind of get some revenge Uh, and Jerry Lawler is interested only in humiliating him more by having him kiss his dirty foot Uh, I think on Raw as well he's always pulling his socks off on Raw in the build-up and he's got like you know make they've done his foot up to make it look like it's got long (laughs) toenails and gangrenous (laughs) boils and all this kind of stuff um so it's all about again it's all about punitively making Brett Hart suffer and making his indenting his reputation and and uh, you know i mean jerry Lolo. the more i talk about it the more i realize was really kind of a trumpian character for the time really when you think about the way that that, that whole political discourse goes today so um, interesting uh, interesting uh, little uh, i guess uh, context there but yeah it's this story and i would sooner call it a story than a match is is tremendous not because you're going to see a classic match it's tremendous because it's uh, just such a brilliantly told story that fits into wider wider character arcs and a pre-existing
1: relationship this is what i want my wrestling to be yeah absolutely i think i think we've talked about this before matches don't need to steal the show matches need to tell a story yes one of those stories might be uh to have a great match and that's fine some stories might be something else, and might be just be leading into something else, which will then become a great match, and sometimes you don't need a great match at all, um, and this is a prime example of that, and it's a shame, it's a shame that's been lost from pro wrestling, really, and I and I can't, I don't know if that's if that's wrestling's fault, or if that's the fans' fault for demanding that every match be a classic, um, but, you know, I it's,
0: think it's, I think it's, <sighs>
1: It's like a cop out, say it. I think it's probably
0: a little bit of both. I think WWE, that for so long was really the only mainstream voice, developed a, a bad habit of making that the be all and end all of, of discussion. And I think that's probably led to uh, an, a, a group think among fans that, you know, if the match isn't seven out of five stars, uh, which is a phrase I use ironically and glibly, uh, then, uh, you know, it's, it's a failure or it's a disappointment or whatever. At some point, the be all end all became how good a match can you have, and you get performers like Dolph Ziggler as well who who've fed it. And to be fair, people like Seth Rollins as well who've probably fed into that a little bit, um, you know. And and nowadays, it's all about who can wrestle the best matches. That's what defines the best professional wrestler on the planet,
1: rather than who could tell the best stories. Yeah, and that's wrong. It's it's completely wrong. Uh, completely wrong headed. I do I do wonder how much the internet and internet wrestling commentary and people like us in a way not that i am saying it's 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 my fault in any way but but <laughs> h- how how much that math. you know that sort of um discourse has you know I, it's, it's, i'd be reluctant to say it's influenced wwe because for so long they didn't give a you know think of a flying fuck what their hardcore fans thought um but there's clearly been a shift to this content heavy style. So you do. Yeah. It's a, it's a real chicken and egg thing. I can't, I can't quite uh, decide yeah. what I think about it. Anyway, something for everyone to at home to, to think about maybe. Um, all right. So the main event uh, is of course, diesel against psycho Sid uh, with of course, Ted DiBiase as his manager um, for the WWF title. Uh, obviously Sid had been kind of you know um, I guess replacing Diesel as the Michaels bodyguard figure and then had betrayed Michaels and beaten him up uh, which had led to a rekindling in the Michaels Diesel friendship uh, and this title match they both had the same finisher as well both used the power bomb as their finisher um, nice little video package actually for the time period when they didn't really put that much effort into them really but um it's a nice little video package sim- simply done into cutting them both kind of being dominant big men uh with some lines of uh dialogue from the build-up and you know i quite like this match it's it's an honest big man match and sometimes that's cool
0: yeah, it's it. I mean, it, it threatens to feel a little bit old hat in an environment where you were getting more of that Bret Hart Hakushi kind of of match, and we'd already been through, uh, you know, two Bret Hart world title reigns. Um, but it's I, I like the way you just phrased it an honest big man match. It's it, you know, it ultimately plays to its strengths, it does what Vince wanted it to do, I guess. Um, the, I think the, the the secret weapon here is it, well I think there's two. The first is, uh, you know, again they've told the story really well and it shows because the crowd are into this. You know, the, it's not like the crowd are sat on their hands dead. Um, and I dare say that a lot of episodes of Monday Night Raw these days, hell even a lot of wrestling pay per views these days would kill to have the kind of atmosphere and reception this match receives. And there's probably a lesson to be had in that. Um, but also it's again. Ted DiBiase and the million dollar corporation. And the fact that Sid is wrestling at the head of that corporation. Um, the background helps a lot. Like you said, Sean used Sid as a substitute bodyguard for WrestleMania, uh, after WrestleMania, Sean and diesel, uh, the, the raw after, in fact, Sean and diesel cut promos, um, intimating mutual respect, having been won from their competition on the, on the evening. Um, Things go south, obviously, between Sean and Sid. Sid powerbomb Sean. We don't see him for months. Diesel wants retribution on his uh, newly rediscovered friend, and that sets up the whole uh, babyface comeback for Shawn Michaels as well. Um, and then you get Ted DiBiase, who sees this situation unfolding and decides he's going he's gonna to bring Sid into the fold, because through Sid, he can gain that power uh, through influence again by being the manager of the world champion, uh, which is no small thing. Um, so at the same time that the whole Undertaker saga is still ongoing in the, in the kind of the, the background of this world now, DBS is branching out. Now he's trying to, to find other means of, of, of accruing power for himself. Um, which we also saw in the main event of WrestleMania 11 that I didn't have a chance to talk about last week cause I got chip shopped by my internet. Um, Obviously with, with you know, the idea of him managing the guy that's able to embarrass the biggest football player in the world at the time. Again, his power through influence, mainstream infamy, and you see his his reaction when Bam Bam loses is one of deep embarrassment and and and, and spewing vitriolic poison in Bam Bam's face because embarrassment is DBS's foil throughout this entire age and we'll see it come up time and time again um, as In Your House progresses. But Uh, I I go uh, off the beaten track a little bit there, but um, I think DiBiase for me uh, and that sense of of wider consequence to this is what makes it feel like there's something more to it than what you're just seeing between the two big men wrestling relatively simple big man stuff. Uh, It's a match that feels like it's got real uh, stakes and real consequences to it uh, because the last thing that you want is a million-dollar corporation Uh, That is growing in numbers, also growing in power and influence by being able to include the world champion and and for the world championship to be on someone as unhinged as Sid, who people may forget was actually a a major cornerstone of this period as well in
1: his own right. And what's really cool about this match is obviously, again, the the story continuity, um, it obviously ends with Bam Bam Bigelow coming down to make the save for Diesel. Um, having been, you know, kind of shunted out of the corporation following that LT loss, um, he then ends up being uh, in a tag match with Diesel against uh, Tatanka and Sid at the next show. So there's a, a great sense of the story developing. And then he gets Sid and Diesel back in a, another title match, the In Your House after King of the Ring. So, it, again, it's like feud progression, which isn't, like, so depressingly linear. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, it's a shared universe. You know, if you're playing the right side of the Pond Bigo, you can cross that one off <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, and that was that was new gen full stop like it wasn't just intermittent it didn't come and go it was just constantly there everybody bumped into everybody else you had a real sense of this like i said of this of this world that wasn't aware of itself uh, that didn't operate in a way that 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 said we know we're a television show you know or, or whispered underneath its breath after every sentence i know this isn't real you know it was it was it was a a show that was fully committed to being a a fictional sport, um, in more ways than one, and it was it was full of these colourful characters and these these uh, events that, um, you know, the, the the fact that the characters were were so three dimensional is probably what allowed for this to happen. You know, you you see what happens at, at WrestleMania 11, you go, well, how would Ted DiBiase react to that loss of his guy? He reacts in exactly the right way. Well, how would Bam Bam Bigelow react to that? reacts exactly the same way and you know and then you just start to form consequences and you start and the characters take on life of their own the story takes on life of their own it's the easiest thing in the world to write Uh, and fans get a really rewarding satisfying product to watch progress and develop Uh, and that's happening top to bottom on these cards and that's what makes it such a pleasure to watch that's what means when you get a sid versus diesel which might not do much on paper to excite you um that actually you can guarantee there's going to be some element to it that's going to make it more engaging than you might think. Uh, and again, that's something that's sorely lacking today. Um, you know, if if every time they booked a match that you kind of groan when you see it, you thought that were, you had confidence there'd be an X factor in it that would make it more compelling because it was part of the bigger picture, it might be easier to swallow when, when WWE goes on these weird fetishistic rampages of booking Brock Lesnar like nobody can beat him. Um, uh, you know, but that's not the case.
1: No, but certainly back back then uh, they understood how to uh, to progress a feud and even though people might not look back on, you know, Sid v Diesel as an all-time great feud, actually it was a feud that was booked much better than a lot of things that would come after it um, and people would do well to remember that, like none of the matches are are classics um, from their series but the story made sense. The story was a good story. And, and as you say, the crowds at the time was into it. So, uh, just shows you really. Indeed. So next week, guys, uh, we will be looking at King of the ring 95, of course, infamously won by Mabel. Um, but there's lots of other things discuss on that show. So that's what we'll be doing, uh, sort of this week is, uh, giving that a little look and then giving you our thoughts on it next Friday. Uh do listen to the rest of LAP radio shows. In the meantime, we are now on YouTube, so you can check us out there as well as on Spreaker and on of course on the Laws of Pain main page. Um so from the right side of the ponds, we'll see you next Friday. Bye.